This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Chali Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver, the big Kaiser Permanente worker strike is over. But their dispute with the healthcare provider is definitely not. So me and producer Paul Caroli are looking into what makes this labor struggle different. Plus, what does the Coors Brewing Dynasty have to do with the latest gay bar closure and Mike Johnston's push to end homelessness? Today is Wednesday, October 11th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. have beef with the uh, New Mexico tourism office that keeps advertising Albuquerque in my neighborhood. <laughs> I've seen those all over the city. I saw a Montana billboard. I saw a, oh, it was another one that was like, what? But here's my question, Paul. Yeah, fair. I've seen those. Minneapolis, maybe. Like Kansas, uh-huh. Utah. But I've only seen the Albuquerque ones in Westwood and... Uh, Athmar Park. I haven't seen them anywhere else yet. So if anybody else has seen them, I want to know. But they're the reason they're annoying. You, we're fans of the Southwest. You and I love New Mexico. I think it's probably where we would live if we didn't live here. But yeah, it's up there. I know you. We, yeah, we as a, I feel like we as a show like New Mexico. So that's not my beef. My beef is the billboards say culture, comma not curated. Yeah, I know. Like it's so rude. It's so rude to me. Are they saying that it's curated in Denver? That culture is? I don't even know what that means culture not curated. I I feel like that is implying that the culture we have here is not organic by the communities that create it. And you need, if you want real culture, you go to Albuquerque. And like, I love Albuquerque. You know what? What? If that billboard means something to you, if, if that resonates with you, maybe you should go to Albuquerque. I mean, yeah, maybe go there. How about that? And not, don't come back. Just kidding. I have so many nice, wonderful, incredible friends in Albuquerque. I don't want to send bad people to you. Hey, Paul. Hey. We're doing a little uh, switch up of our regularly scheduled programming for the week because usually we do this conversation for Tuesdays. We had Indigenous People's Day off, but we love to talk about the news so much. (laughs) I do. I know you do. That we wanted. There was some big stuff we had to talk about. So I guess let's just let's just start there. Let's start with. Let's start with the Kaiser strike. Yes. Huge. 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 People kept saying historic. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly why. Well, I mean, I would say just on the surface, it's not something you see often as healthcare, because we'll talk about why, how this, how this process works, how you strike when you're in a, when you're in an industry that cares for people. It's complicated. But 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers walked off the job last Wednesday, calling for higher wages and better working conditions in the hospitals. Where are we at right now with this, Paul? Yeah, so it was a three-day strike. Uh, it was 3,000 uh, Kaiser workers here in Colorado went on strike. That's according to my contact with the union here. 
uh, the SEIU Local 105. So if you saw people outside of the Kaiser office on Alameda last week picketing mm-hmm. and wearing purple, that was why. There were five rally locations on Friday all across the state. So it was like a three-day planned strike, right? Like they had a set. This is not how some strikes are where they just go on until the meet, you know, to maybe the... Until the bosses cave. That's how it's supposed right. to work. At least that's that, that's why this was so interesting to me is because normally that's where the leverage of a strike comes from. You just say you're leaving right. work. The company stops making money. So they need to acquiesce to your demands in order to get the business back on track. Um, but in this case, it was it was widely reported as a planned three day strike, which I don't know about you, but I did not understand on its face. So uh, I reached out. I talked to that same person that I mentioned. Um, and this spokesperson explained to me, and it's it's a very good answer. Um, the negotiations are not over, basically, is what's happening. That This three-day strike was just one step in an escalating like ramp up to what could be an open-ended strike. Mm. And, and the reason why that is, is because unlike other industries, like you alluded to, healthcare workers are required by federal law to give a 10-day advanced notice of a work stoppage to a healthcare employer. Um, the, the purpose is to allow that employer time to make arrangements to ensure that, you know, the people who need health care are getting health care, critically ill patients, um, et cetera. It seems, you know, kind of obvious when you think about it. Um, but but the key part of this to me is that and, and this is this is the spokesperson's words. This also limits the strategy for healthcare workers when planning a work stoppage. They can't just walk off the job like in other industries. Yeah. It makes total sense to me. I mean, it was the first thing I thought was, oh, okay. the reason they're doing this is because if you just if every healthcare worker in this system walked off the job, you've got surgeries that are literally probably they're in the prep. Right. You know, in that moment, you've gotten, you know, I've had surgery before. You have like five nurses helping you before you even see the surgeon. And then there's nurses in the operating room. Well, if you're doing a transplant, if you're doing some kind of I could see where they can't operate in the same way, but they need to be able to use the mechanism of a strike if that's where they are with negotiations with their employer. And this is kind of the way they did it. But what I found interesting, and I want to know if you found out more about this, Paul, is so this was the precursor to a potential larger strike. How does How does that work if they do want to walk off the job? Well, uh, the timeline is the workers have already authorized the union to continue pushing uh, for better wages, for better working conditions um, in a deal that they still haven't reached with their bosses. So the negotiations are ongoing, um, even though the strike, the three day strike is over. If an agreement is still not met by November 1st, another longer strike could be called, which would include the full 85,000 uh, strong workforce of uh, Kaiser workers all across the country. Whoa. I mean, it was 75,000 last week. So it's like, it's a little bit more. It's a little bit more. And I'm, again, these are like doctor's offices and hospitals and all kinds of things. And um, I just want to speak a little bit really quickly before we move on to the, per, I would say, the perspective that I've understood from my friends that are nurses. Everyone knows on this, listens to this show regularly. My mother has been a nurse for 50 years that supported a family of six on a nurse's salary. And um, she didn't just do that job because it's how she made her money. She's always it's a passion job. She cares about caring for people. And I saw a couple of friends on Instagram who were nurses saying, this is really tearing at me because I have to walk away from my patients, but I want better working conditions for myself. So 
don't, I think it's important to remember like these folks are striking for a better life for themselves, but ultimately so they can serve you because they care about serving other people. So I don't know. I just wanted to give a little shout out to the nurses who are struggling with having to make this decision. Isn't that kind of interesting though, the way the passion is the thing that you have to have to make up the gap. I, like these, this, all these regulations like that. that limit the, the, the power and like the timing of strikes to me, when I hear about that, all I think is like, you're just, that's just diminishing worker power. If workers can't walk off the job anytime they want, I they know. have less leverage to get those better working conditions. Truth. So you have to fill the gap with passion or compassion. And that's like, I don't know. I mean, that's part of what makes healthcare unique. Right. And it's inherent in why people are in healthcare in the first place, which is how it gets exploited to begin with, is you have an industry full of a lot of people that are there because they want, they feel called. I would say it's one of those jobs that can be a calling to do this work. So when you do a job that's a calling, sometimes you make you make trade-offs for it. And I feel like just nurses at this point are like, I'm done with the trade-offs, man. I made it through COVID. I made it through anti-vax people screaming at me about masks. I just want to be treated better and paid more so I can continue to do the thing I care about. Well, we'll see how November 1st, how this one plays out. Maybe there'll yeah. be a deal before then. but For sure. Um, Brie, your <laughs> fail last Friday. Do you remember it on the show? You talked about do. Red Pant Man. Can you briefly summarize? Because I have an update. Okay. Too long didn't read version. Red Pant Man was a Nuggets fan that was courtside for a lot of last season. If you were watching the games, you were like, who's Red Pant? Who is this man? Like, he's clearly wearing red pants. Because so we are trying to pay it. Who is this guy? He's on TikTok as Red Pant Man. He's this dude. Well, a reporter went and dug around and it's like, ugh, he may or may not be. He was an investor in a community bank here called Solera, which when it began was a social, like a community minded bank that was specifically set up to serve the Latino community. There's one branch. It's in my neighborhood. According to the re the reporting, this gentleman was an investor in that and then may have been misusing funds from there to buy himself a private plane. To fly to Nuggets games. To fly to Nuggets games, which... <laughs> But somebody, someone, a listener reached out to us because there was a little bit of misinformation about this bank, right? Well, let me take it from here. Okay. So the listener wrote in with a text. Uh, they say, this is so weird. I was literally on the corner of Sheridan and Alameda <laughs> looking at Solera as you were talking about Red Pant Man. I work nearby and thought they still operated under their original mission of helping the underserved and Hispanic community. But last month they told me they had pivoted away in 2017 to do personal wealth management <laughs> they no longer are doing anything aligned with ori the original mission for what it's worth i'm laughing because i couldn't think of something like maybe less like community banking and then personal wealth management no it's just like okay so they wanted to make some money all right okay someone yeah they wanted something. to make some money um i thought this was so interesting because it, i don't i don't think i saw this in the original reporting so this was really just some helpful context oh no Brie, it gets oh, steeper. Oh, it goes it more? It gets deeper. Um, <gasps> what? So I Googled this after the listener wrote in because I was just like, why would they make a decision like that? That's an interesting change for a bank. Um, and yeah. I learned uh, from a series of articles from the Denver Post around 2014 to 2016 that this, uh, what started as a Hispanic community serving bank, uh, ha went through a bit of a rupture in 2014. So I'm quoting from the Denver Post, board member Michael Quagliano aka red pant man red pant man 
led a hostile takeover following <gasps> poor financial what? returns that Quagliano blamed on mismanagement and puffed salaries. The bank was in the red for much of former CEO John Carmichael's tenure. So he led a takeover. <laughs> That's rich, Paul. That's rich. It's to me. It's so juicy. Quagliano, Red Pant Man, leads a hostile takeover of this bank, changes the model to personal wealth management, and then starts flying all over the country on the bank's money to go see Nuggets games. Allegedly. I should say on that last part. That's still in litigation. But he was concerned about puffed up uh, uh, people getting paid too much i guess so oh my gosh <laughs> i just i just finished this with if you happen to be a banker or someone that was banking at solera just down the street is a great bank called zing unfortunately named zing formerly denver community credit union which is why i joined if you're looking for a local credit union bank that's awesome go to zing Screw Solera. Bree, one last question for you. After after sure. now knowing the whole Red Pant Man saga, <sighs> the Nuggets take the court on uh, October 24th, regular season starts. Do you think Red Pant Man will be there? Will he show his face? I would not if I was him. I would be changing my red pants if I was there. I would be toning it down a little bit. Um, I bet he. I bet he'll be there, but we won't know it's him because he is not wearing his red pants. He'll be incognito. Yes, because, well... Is he really a Nuggets fan or was he just like kind of like a fame person? That we may never know. Well, if anyone if anyone knows or is able to identify Red Pant Man without his red pants, um, let us know when the first Nuggets game, after the first Nuggets game, if you saw him or not. I'm curious. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, local business drama. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade. Hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. And we're back. So something ongoing we are always talking about is Mayor Mike Johnston's work to end homelessness in his first term. Mm -hmm. He's already housed 168 people out of the thousand that he hopes to house. And I would say we've talked about what housed means at this point. But where this ties into this next story is, um, was it last weekend? A gay bar with really deep roots in Denver closed. It was the Triangle, which was at 2036 North Broadway, which is, I think, Broadway, where Broadway and Stout and like 20... 20th or 21st meet. Um, at any rate, the big deal was, according to the owners, quote, thanks primarily to the ever-expanding encampments which have surrounded and suffocated the business in our neighborhood, this is why they say they closed. Paul? Yeah. Why don't you go ahead? You have, have a strong reaction to this. Yeah, go ahead. This. What does that quote have I mean, make you I, feel? To me, whenever we're like punching down this hard in society, like I just didn't, this did not sit with me. 
as a reason a bar that is in the neighborhood where our homelessness services have been located for several decades. It just didn't feel like exactly the whole story of why they may have closed. I can't say that Triangle was never a place I went. I would just say, honestly, it's not really for women, mostly. It's not really, it's never been a a women's friendly bar. Oh, really? I've never actually been in. I've just driven past. It always looked crowded to me, at least on Sundays, Sunday afternoons, that patio. That was the other part to me. It was like, the business was bad. It didn't look bad to me. I can't speak to it. I didn't go there. But there was just something that didn't feel like the whole story. And the other part that was strange to me was, Many, many, many news outlets here. I think pretty much everyone covered the closure and just shared that story. This is what the owner said. And I didn't, it just didn't feel like the whole story to me. Oh boy. (laughs) If you're looking for the whole story, have I got a whole story for you? I went down a real rabbit hole on the Triangle Bar because it touched on one of my favorite Denver obsessions, which is the Coors family behind the Coors Brewing Company. This was a tiny detail that maybe a lot of people just glanced over this. I did not. The owner of the Triangle Bar, the person who announced that they uh, are now indefinitely closed, um, is Scott Coors. Okay. One of the scions of the 150-year-old brewing dynasty. So that's where the story starts. Um, This is a bit of a tangent. This is just something that's kind of been interesting to me about Coors forever is like, how did how did it come that the Coors family became such a big supporter of LGBTQ causes in Denver and um, just become like known and tied to this community? Like the Coors is always a big sponsor of Pride every June. And, sure. and Scott Coors here is the owner of this gay bar. So what? Wh- how did this happen? One of the owners. One of the owners. Well, he owns the building. Yes. That's, that's a fact I learned in Westward. Oh. Um, and we'll get there. Anyway, here's, here's the tangent. It's a story from The Advocate, the national LGBTQ magazine. Um, apparently Scott Coors, unlike the other Coors men, he went to Stanford, not Cornell. Um, and when he was in San Francisco, uh, he, he had this experience. He goes into his favorite gay bar and he asks for a Coors and the bartender says, absolutely not. We don't sell that crap in here. Um, so Scott Coors, he apparently found this very painful that there would be these um, attitudes uh, from gay activists and the LGBTQ community towards the Coors family. Of course, the Coors family has been a subject of boycotts for many, many years, not just from the gay community. Um, but for Scott, it was it was really quite painful. And then on a visit home from Stanford in 1988, I'm quoting from The Advocate, Coors is talking to his dad. He's telling a story about um, a, a drive he had with his father, Bill Coors, who was then the patriarch of the whole family. He said... Uh, My biggest fear in the whole world was that my father would think less of me, says Coors, who has two half-sisters from his father's first marriage. I chose the stupidest time to tell him. He was driving me down the freeway near home. I was just 21, and he must have been around 73. We started talking about family things. He's had a lot of tragedy in his life. Um, He had one son who choked to death, so I'm the only son who can give him grandchildren. Um, I was crying and blurted out, I'm a failure to you, Dad. I'm gay, says Coors, his voice softening. He didn't skip a beat. Well, why are you crying? 10% of the world is gay, Bill Coors responds. He never gave me any sense that I was any less of a human being, so it hurts me to no end to see him vilified. He is such a beautiful person. That's Scott Coors talking about his father. Okay. 
interesting. Isn't that interesting? I, I just thought that was a sweet story. Um, Scott Coors became kind of like a poster child for the family at that point, like an ambassador to the LGBTQ community. Mm. He's like, you're 10% of the market share. <laughs> exactly. And, and so he's embraced by the family. The family embraces him, the changing attitudes within this old conservative family. Then in 2017, Scott Coors has an opportunity to buy this historic gay bar that was once quite an institution in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's the Triangle Bar. It had been yes. owned, it had closed in the early 2000s and then owned by a series of other restaurants. Um, this was reporting from Westward that I saw. Yeah, I was going to say I was familiar with it when it was a horribly run uh, venue called Rockaway Tavern, Rockaway Bar, where my band played a show. And at the end, we were like, cool, can we get paid now? And they were like, nope, you just played a benefit. We didn't tell you that. All your money is going somewhere else. So Sorry you can that. imagine. <laughs> I don't care. It's just, it's a lot. It's one of those like, this is a building that's hosted a lot of sketchy situations. But 2017, they bring it back. 2017, they bring it back. They want to bring the and triangle at the time, back. if you'll remember, in that neighborhood, was kind of a different story because this was after, this is a couple decades after Coors Field was built and the homeless services moved in, which was around like the late 80s, early 90s. And that's really when it became the area that we know it now, this tension between the development of the nightlife and the Coors Field section and then the the homeless services on the other side of, of what some people call Arapahoe Square. Um, and Hancock, our former mayor, he was talking a big game about developing the area. So I think that's what Scott Coors mm. got in on. He saw this historic gay bar and he saw some momentum. I mean, think about the development energy around the Welton Street corridor, just up the block, all those big apartment buildings that went up there. Highly controversial. Also, yes. For sure. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's why he bought in and tried to, to bring this bar back. He's, it's real estate also. Like, let's just be honest. This is a real estate story. He saw some good real estate. He saw what you said, a neighborhood poised to boom or at least in the processes of I'm going to get in on this and maybe cater to a community that's not being catered to by other bars around here and play off of an institution that existed here for decades for the same community that was very important. Maybe open open his own gay bar where he could buy a course. You could kind of uh, you could see the appeal for someone like Scott Coors. <laughs> sure. I see real estate, but yes. <laughs> so we're we're here today with them closing. Yeah. Well, the after bar. the initial excitement of those first few years, the, apparently, according to Scott Coors, the, the story changed uh, during the pandemic. Um, that's when uh. that's when he, he says uh, there started to be just a lot more people in the area. The encampments got a lot bigger. And then there was this one quote where uh, he says, uh, homeless residents moved into a fenced off area near the Triangle Bar and turned it into a gated community for themselves. They named the area the Gutter House, adds Coors. There was a whiteboard out front posting drug deals. There was prostitution. There was trafficking going on there. There was a murder that happened there. Um, so Scott Coors says that he he sent out a survey to all hmm. of his patrons, a survey of 500 people, which found that about 75% were visiting the business less often. Of those, more than 60% said they were coming less frequently because of the safety fears brought on by the encampments. Now, now it's not just the survey, according to Coors. He said there was also a lot of turmoil mm. at the bar. They had a big management change and some changes in programming. Um, but the the survey seems uh, to be the instrumental huh. thing that changed his mind to, uh, to along with his partners to close. Sure, not the turmoil within the bar about how things were being managed. That couldn't possibly be. Well, you know how it is with a business. Bad vibes are contagious. You know, one thing starts going wrong. Other things start going wrong. But I also know it's really easy to blame unhoused people for things that you think are not good. 
And like, I just, I also don't buy this survey because surveys are inherently biased based on who is writing them and what the, what they're trying to get out of the data and the information. So I did not look over this study. I would like to, but I would be curious how questions are asked and how they're positioned. And I don't buy this. I don't know. I don't, when I read these quotes, I don't think he's blaming homeless people. I want to understand why you're why you're really? saying that. Yeah, I feel like what he's talking about is he's seeing his customers not this. come back. He's seeing his business go down. If he's not making as much money, why stay open if people aren't finding the business useful? I have a hard time believing this what story part? coming from somebody that I think that he maybe made an investment that is not making enough money and, you know, bars are Bars are not easily, it's not that they're super profitable right away. Also, just because you were the triangle 30 years ago doesn't mean your new clientele. I would say a lot of folks who've just, you know, who moved here in the last couple of years didn't know what the triangle was. Maybe they just weren't there yet. Maybe your clientele wasn't there yet. Maybe your base wasn't there yet. Like, I don't know, man. I've seen a lot of bars open and close that I thought were doing perfectly fine. And then you're like, wait, I just went to that bar last week and it was packed. And then it was like, oh, so-and-so was embezzling. Oh, so their whole staff walked out. Like there might've been real problems. And I just find that this seems to be the top part of the story that everybody, that other reporters reached out and just grabbed hold of and yeah. ran with. And then the more interesting part to me is the second half. <laughs> we had turmoil with in the bar. So just a, a lot of things coming together, honestly, is what it sounds like to me. That, that's what I would say is I agree with you to the extent that this could be a component of the issue of why they closed. I just don't think it's the whole story. And I feel like you exposed more of the story than I read previously. I would just say that. And I appreciate that because I think more people need to think about the fact that like, it's, it is, it's a business. It's in an area that is, I'm not going to deny it's not complicated down there for sure. Well, but also like there's the whole Coors element, like this whole backstory. I'm not just laying that all out there because it's a fun tangent. I actually think the Coors brand might not be very popular within this community. I think all like being the subject of boycotts for years and years and years, mm. just because you come in and buy a gay bar and, and try to open this up and say this is a resource for the community doesn't erase all of the things that those activists were upset about. I, that's helpful. I didn't think about it. All I thought, of, I just saw this as like, that's a great PR story. Like that's the perfect PR story to sell the fact that you're just a large corporation that like bought something. It's just another asset for yeah. you. <laughs> But I think that that's interesting. And maybe I would be curious to hear from listeners if that was a factor, you know, maybe like, yeah, I didn't go there because I didn't want to support Coors. Or maybe you didn't go down there because of the encampments. Or maybe you just, you know, like, or maybe that was your favorite bar. Yeah. So I'd just be curious to hear from listeners like you and I are not patrons of this bar, Paul. So I would love to know if if people, how people feel about this story. Did it reflect what they experience. We'll call in. Call in on the... Uh, the yes, please. <laughs> the Coors Legacy Hotline, <laughs> 720-500-5418. We want to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail. Send us a text. We'll follow up on it. We'll learn new secrets yes. about this that we didn't expect. <laughs> um, again, the number is 720-500-5418. Paul, I appreciate the backstory on the Coors part. I know, right? It's honestly something I would have not paid attention to. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. It's one of those families in our state, it's right? It's a very important, influential company. Deep roots in a lot of different parts of our story. So. Taste the high country, climb up to cool.
Okay, Paul, well, before we go, uh, we always love to hear from our listeners. And um, someone reached out with a correction for us. Hey, guys, this is Debbie from Pueblo, formerly of Aurora. And um, I just got to call you out on a mistake. <gasps> Bree, you said that the uh, Chuck E. Cheese in Inglewood had murders, but that is not the right location, or at least not that I know of. <sighs> um, the mass murder was at the Chuck E. Cheese in Aurora, the original Chuck E. Cheese from Peoria and Iliff, um, where Panera Bread is now. And that's why they closed it. And now folks can go Chuck E. Cheese in a former Michael's in Aurora. So I just wanted to let you know that Aurora had four mass murders um, in 1993, which is always sad. Um but because it was my stomping grams, I actually knew about that one. So you guys keep doing what you're doing. It's awesome. Love you. Bye-bye. Oh, my gosh. First of all, Debbie, we know. Longtime listener and reader. We, we love hearing from you. Thanks, Debbie. You're the best. Yeah, thanks for that correction. I totally, I was wrong. Wrong Chuck E. Cheese. Still terrible. Several people uh, wrote in about this one. I had never heard of this when it came up on our one-star review game episode. I would just say, uh, unfortunately, because we have had so many murders since since 93, I could see why maybe it's not as prominent as other stories, but equally terrible and sad. But thank you all for that correction. Well, thanks, Paul. Yeah, thanks. See you tomorrow, Brie. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed this show, why not take a minute to tell Scott Coors about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See you later. They're not a strong bang. They are not a heavy, they're not a, they're not a statement bang. It's a real half commitment to the banks.